Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. I want to look today at my, with my guest at the fate of South African railways and every, every and everything that that implies. Now, the first railway was built in, I think it was 1840 in the Cape. And over over time and over history, the a network was combined to create essentially one of the most, one of the largest, most effective, if not the largest and most effective railway and port networks on the African continent. And this is one of those, shall we say, bequests from the colonial masters where there is a benefit to the people that uh, they have ruled over in that they left a structure and a set of, 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 of businesses that immediately could keep South Africa ahead and possibly even further ahead of any other country in Africa in its ability to get people and goods around the country and off our shores. The question then is, is we're looking at what went wrong. Chris Hutton, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning, Sarah, and good morning to the listeners. Always good to get to talk to you. Chris, what did go wrong? I mean, the, the South African railway sector was was huge in African, in, in terms of the African continent. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, what a, how sad to see the effects of, 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 idea, of the wrong ideas and policies. I mean, we often talk about these things. We talk about the National Democratic Revolution. We talk about BE. And to some people, it might come across as very esoteric. And, you know, maybe sometimes we do talk too philosophically, but this is, what happens when one adopts the wrong ideas and policies. These are the concrete effects and you get rid of, of what was built before. It takes a long time to build infrastructure and prosperity and job opportunities and the right conditions for investment. But these things can also be destroyed over time, either overnight or over a long period of time. And then it takes a very long time to get back there. I think a big driving factor in the decline has been simple negligence and an assumption that you know someone will take care of it there wasn't a realization of the work that was needed it might look quite boring to have to maintain basic rail infrastructure but if you don't do the basics right then the bigger things can't happen that's when you run into things like getting trains that are too tall because you haven't paid attention to what the gauges are like or what the rail is like or anything like that you don't pay attention to how weather impacts operations at ports and how it might be uh, sort of affecting that, that, that concrete, that infrastructure. Is it wearing it away? What do you need to do to make sure that it's protected? How do you need to upgrade things? It's all, it's all about taking cognizance of the reality on the ground and what we need to implement and adopt to make sure that that condition either at least continues or at, in the best case scenario improves. And then just another sort of major contributing factor the last 27 years, I would say, maybe a little bit less, has just been the sort of ideology of the ruling party, which has demanded that it, it controls everything, all the infrastructure and all of the economy, but it doesn't have the skills to do that. So here, here we run into things such as cater deployment, uh, BE. We have a new version of BE on the cards, which is known as the Employment Equity amendment bill, all these ideas that the ruling party needs to be in control of everything, but it doesn't have the skills, but it needs to attain these, you know, these very ephemeral racial targets. It, it you know, reduces 
black South Africans, especially to mere numbers and targets and says, oh, we need X amount in management of transit or we need X amount in management of the port of Cape Town. But have we trained people appropriately? Have we ensured that they had the right education? Have we invested enough in skills development and getting this necessary equipment? So that's when you run into to the, the reality of trying to fulfill quotas on the surface, but not doing the work to ensure that quality on the very basic level is maintained. Talking about cadre deployment and and BEE is the terrible implication of that is that skills or the ability to do the job or the experience to do the job just doesn't come into it at any level whatsoever in the organization and particularly at managerial level where the decisions have to be made and the instructions have to be given and added to that added to that is you have the corruption that that occurred particularly in sort of siphoning off of money that was that was available when contracts were put into play surely i mean this 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 is while a level of it is 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 negligence um this is, I, I, would, I would, I was, it has to be almost deliberate because you, you have to know that unless those skills are the first thing you look for, the, 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 they can't sustain the, the, the enterprise. No, I agree completely. I think one could definitely make a strong case for, for deliberate action. And again, it, it comes back to sort of self enrichment at the cost of, of other people. So if you have the necessary political connections and, and influence and power than you and your friends, your family, your fellow cronies, you're fine. It doesn't affect you if the country's rail networks are actively destroyed or if they don't have proper security protection. So it's easier for people to steal steal the rail and, and all of the, the sort of basic equipment. It doesn't affect you because, you know, you're ensconced and protected from these things you can afford no matter how much the petrol price increases, you can afford to fly, you can afford to go overseas, you you have access to all the goods and services you need. So it's a very insular approach to, to how these things work. And it's it's really indicative of the, I almost want to say holier than now, but not that's not the right expression. It's indicative of, I think, just how many people in the ruling party don't realize, or when they do, they don't care about the the real-world effects of their policies because it only affects the, the man on the street and and they're fine. I mean, they can go to country clubs and places like that and be fine. So why would they be bothered about maintaining the networks? I mean, there, there seems to be this almost uh, fairyland scenario where you have exactly the scenario you've spoken about, the, the lack of care, the lack of concern, the lack of skills. Um, but on the other time, on the other hand, and this is why I raised the issue, is almost every day that you read about the government wanting to sort of increase, have increased investments and uh, increase, you know, improve the state of the economy and more particularly the capable state, so it alleges. You you will have businesses, whether it's mining, whether it's manufacturing, it could be almost anything that say we can produce what could be beneficial to exports for the country, but we cannot get the stuff from the railways to the ports. What if you know? What is the likely outcome of that? And just give us an idea of what's happened to the ports, which are at the end of the railways, which have now been pretty much destroyed. Yeah, last year I'm sure this year a new version will be released. But last year, World Bank, the World Bank, and another organisation released a report on the world's ports, and South Africa's ports were ranked pretty much at the very bottom out of 351 
facilities. So it indicates, you know, just with the data and the numbers in terms of the number of, of um, containers moved through a port, it, 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 it uses a metric that, that measures the number of containers moved versus the time it takes to move them. Um, and on that metric, South Africa's ports, all of them rank very low. Of course, last year with the, the riots in July, especially in KZN, um, a lot of sort of ancillary facilities and infrastructure would have been destroyed, especially in Durban. So that is a big hole that now needs to be repaired. Over the last two years, government has now, in terms of its quote-unquote structural reform, spun off the Ports Authority, the Transnet Ports Authority, into a separate entity. So this is now how they're trying to show that they are serious about reform. My main concern is that It'll simply be run as another SOE, and will the people appointed on the board actually be allowed to make hard decisions that affect the sort of vested interests and cadres, or will they simply be interfered with if they they push the boats, you know, if they quote unquote try and push the boat out too quickly or too far to sea, and they try and do the real reforms that are necessary. And then with the rail, there is talk about some measure of privatisation, but again. Will the more lucrative routes simply be kept for for sort of state companies and, and contractors such as Transnet specifically? Or will those also be opened up for private uh, businesses and operators to, to take over? That, those are very big questions. I think in the interim, I mean, South Africans will have to factor in higher food prices, especially because... Because companies can't move their, their food and goods across rail, they need to use trucks and other forms of road transport. And as the fuel price increases, so too will they have to increase the goods, the prices of their goods. So South Africans, unfortunately, for the next while, I think, will need to deal with that rea- that very harsh reality. And, you know, for all the talk about investment, especially last week at President Ramaphosa's fourth investment conference, those are probably investments and, and agreements that were in the pipeline anyway and that have been signed off. Mm. I don't think these are the really in the sort of infrastructure manufacturing space that the country needs. And then just finally, the Africa continental free trade area, for all the talk about government supporting it and how great it'll be about uh, increasing the, the, the ease of moving goods across borders and through ports, the South African government is pursuing localization plans which I think are just going to increase the costs of goods and services so don't don't put your hopes just yet on big pro free trade reforms coming anytime soon I think that'll maybe after 2024 if we see some sort of coalition government that might be a reality yeah it, it seems from what you're saying that government just can't help fiddling so if it's if it's hanging on to the most lucrative routes i would imagine they'll become less lucrative because unless they're properly managed um they will stop being used Uh, the the uh, suppliers will find other ways to um, to move their goods or they won't move their goods at all i mean my, my my concern is that particularly as a consequence of COVID, and none of this is purely as a consequence of COVID, much as the the uh president would like to hint at it. But as a consequence of COVID, you've got supply lines being disrupted. And so anyone bringing in, importing stuff into the country is going to have the same problems. And as you say, it's one is a little delay having goods available. So there should, there may be shortages. And the other, of course, is if they have to use alternatives such as, such as trucks, you're dealing with um, destruction of road infrastructure. And that's almost an emotional issue for, for South Africans. 
surely this is, I mean, to you and me, this, this it seems logical that you avoid, it's got to be cheaper going by rail in a, in a proper system. Uh, are we just destined to increase the number of trucks and increase the destruction of our roads in the meantime? Because government keeps talking about things, but nothing ever seems to happen or very slowly or marginally, etc. So are we just looking at further destruction of roads and said in, and related infrastructure? I think in the interim, that's definitely the case. We might see good, good beacons, I'll call them beacons if it were in places like the Western Cape. There are increasing calls for the privatization of, of the Cape Town Harbour. So maybe if, if that party in the Western Cape decides to simply take that move, maybe that'll be interesting sort of test case to see if they can actually do that. And then if they can turn it around, there's no guarantee, of course, just because it's another party. You know, one has to see if they actually implement the right uh, systems and bring in the right people and the right skills and that sort of thing. In terms of importers, a lot of them are now trying to come through places like Namibia and Mozambique. So they're trying to, instead of coming through our ports directly, they're coming into sub-Saharan Africa through other countries and then bringing it across our land borders. So you will see increased traffic, at least in those areas. I will say in the last two weeks, and this is maybe a point of of hope, but don't don't bet the house <laughs> on it, doesn't matter. But Transnet has temporarily at least removed BE criteria from its tender documents pending the outcome of a constitutional court ruling on a case regarding preferential regulations that favor black-owned businesses. So this is related to um, to offering business who won its constitutional case against Finance Minister Gordon Guana in February. Now, it, it's obviously, I think, a good thing that they're trying this. So let's see how long it stays and if through at least suspending the EE requirements for the time being, they can lower some of their operational costs and get, get some measure of better system performance going. As you say, it's an opportunity that, uh, from our perspective, would be wonderful. Um, my, my, my cynicism suggests that it, it won't last for long. But be that no, as may, I wanted to just discuss, uh, I was looking at the list of CEOs that have run Transnet um, since it was founded. And things really seemed to take a dive when Brian Malefi became the CEO of Transnet. Everything that could go wrong deliberately or carelessly seem to have gone wrong. And I don't have the impression that the four CEO or, or him and the three CEOs that have followed um, have either done anything, even if they intended to or were capable of doing anything. And the most recent CEO is, is uh, Portia Derby, who is in fact uh, Brian Malefi's ex-wife. Are these, these recent CEOs, are they people with the experience necessary to run something as complex as a, as a railways? I mean, I know not everyone's going to come in with experience of running railways, but people with experience in big business would, 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 would usually adapt. To your knowledge, do any of these people have that sort of experience? Or is it, again, just the cardio deployment uh, application? Yeah, no one specifically out of all of them that I've looked at in the last while jump out. One, one should also make the point that it shouldn't really, I mean, it shouldn't matter up to, up to the point who the CEO of a company or an organization is, but it, you should have such good systems and and the right sort of ideas behind your business in place that if something happens to the CEO tomorrow, the company could still function very well. So the whole thing doesn't just fall apart when he or she, something happens to them when they decide to leave or anything like that. And then also the systems aren't so weak that a new person can just put in who they want. They can just sort of say, oh, well, 
this person from that previous business or this one who went to school with me or yeah. that one, you know, they should get the, the job and the contract. That, those, those things should be in place regardless. I mean, that's when you have the, the country perspective idea of checks and balance. So that the right things are in place. So it doesn't really matter who the president is. He can't just run roughshod over everything and everyone. I will say, sorry, just with uh, Malefe, yeah, I, this is a, it's an unfortunate case and an example, but it, it helps again to serve the argument that when you mix the, the the government with the economy and the sector of the economy to such an extent, you increase the incentives for corruption. So cater deployment is then, you know, it, it's it's most strident advocates will have to concede that even with its quote-unquote noble intentions, because the the incentives for political connections and, and, and sort of political money-making are so increased, you increase the incentives for people to put in those who, you know, can give them a rub in a serious time or give them a pat on the back or something like that. You should simply, it shouldn't be mixed to that extent where it, it, it's only a case of who you know and not whether you can do a job well or not. Right. I think ESCOM perhaps offers uh, lessons in uh, in a lot of those issues and uh, particularly the, the issue of middle middle level management. Uh, Chris, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I know you've got a, a, a workshop to get to, so um, I thank you very much for, for giving your input on that and uh, confirming that we have a long, I was going to say road ahead of us, but perhaps I mean rail ahead of us. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Sarah.